I'm Talmadge Boston. Welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore America's rich history and thought leadership through interviews with best-selling authors and leading public figures. Today's interview is with Judge Ken Starr, a leading expert in constitutional law, who's now working on a new book on the subject of religious liberty. We did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on February 28, 2020. Enjoy. Well, it's a great thrill for me to be here tonight to introduce one of my true heroes, Ken Starr. I've had the privilege of knowing Ken for 16 years now. When I was actively involved in the State Bar of Texas, we made the good decision one year to have Ken as our keynote speaker at the State Bar Convention. And somehow we've found ways to stay connected for the last 16 years. You have in your program uh, an explanation of some of the high points of Ken's amazing life and career. One of my pet peeves is when somebody introduces a keynoter and tells you everything that you could read in your program. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you just a few things before we start the program about Ken that maybe you didn't know. First of all, Ken is a native Texan, born in Vernon, Texas. Uh, His father was a Church of Christ minister. And as most of you know, Church of Christ ministers don't make a whole lot of money. So to make ends meet, Ken's father was a barber as well as a minister. Ken went to high school in San Antonio. He's president of student council. And then when it came time for college, he started at Harding, uh, but then went to George Washington. You see his education in your program. One thing you may not know, though, is when he got through with law school, uh, he uh, clerked for a Fifth Circuit judge, but then he clerked for Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, Warren Burger. Anybody who does that, you know, has a very bright future. And then uh, after he got through with that, he was in private practice for four years with Gibson Dunn. But one of the top partners at Gibson Dunn was a guy named William French Smith, who uh, President Reagan chose to be his attorney general. So uh, William French Smith chose the best and the brightest at Gibson Dunn to follow him to the Justice Department. And so Ken went, and while he was there, worked with some people you may have never heard of, John Roberts, Rudy Giuliani, and Ted Olson, probably the leading appellate lawyer in D.C. who argued uh, President Bush's case in Bush v. Gore. Uh, After that, uh, at the age, at the tender age of 37, he was named a justice on the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, which is like number one behind the U.S. Supreme Court. So many of the justices on that court go to the Supreme Court. If you talk to anybody in Washington, D.C., they'll tell you that had Ken not accepted first the job as Solicitor General and then later as independent counsel that pursued the Clinton situation, Ken would be not only on the U.S. Supreme Court, but in all likelihood would be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He has this bad habit of saying yes <laughs> when his country calls, and it's obviously made a, uh, a difference in his career. But he's had, as you know, an amazing career. Uh, most recently, uh, we know that uh, he's the, maybe the world's leading authority on the subject of impeachment. And so you've probably seen him on, on Fox TV and other uh, networks. And, of course, uh, he's so good, Fox had him on almost every day. And then when President Trump was trying to put together the top lawyers for his defense team, of course, he chose Ken. And one thing you probably don't know is that while he was on the defense team and making these unbelievably historically important arguments, he's also teaching law school at Regent University. 
So how about that? So anyway, maybe there are some things you didn't know about Ken, but I think you need to know. Please welcome Ken, uh, uh, Judge Ken Starr. Now, Ken, uh, you are now at work, I'm happy to say, on a book on religious liberty, and we can hardly wait for that when it comes out in a couple of years, and that's our, our subject tonight. So we know that the Constitution's First Amendment uh, protects freedom of religion. Uh, so how far does it go these days in protecting freedom of religious conscience, knowing what we've learned from the Hobby Lobby case in 2014 and the Masterpiece Cake Shop case in 2018. Where can we say freedom of religious conscience is these days? We should, uh, well, first of all, thank you all for coming and for supporting uh, this beautiful uh, ministry. Uh, Bobby, thank you for uh, making the choice to not go into industry uh, and other activity, uh, but to dedicate yourself to this very important work. And Talmadge, Thank you. Talmadge is a very dear friend. And could I ask Claire and Alistair to stand up and be recognized? And then I'll answer the question. <clears throat> we have much to be thankful for in this country. The first 16 words of the First Amendment indicates that freedom of conscience, non-establishment of religion. Well, let's stay with the text. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Notice that the words do not say freedom of worship. That's included, but it's not limited to that. And that's one of the pressure points right now that translates over into the political arena. Happily, this is a non-political gathering. Be on the lookout, my dear friends, when you hear someone say in public life or seeking public office, the First Amendment protects freedom of worship. Yes, it does. But the words, the free exercise of religion. And there is very good news indeed because the example that you used of the Hobby Lobby case is an example where the Supreme Court of the United States, just by a divided vote upheld the freedom of conscience of the Green family who started Great American Success Story, Hobby Lobby, now with 600 or 700 stores across the United States. But the family, it's privately held, the family could not in conscience provide certain forms of reproductive services for, in particular, that the family viewed thoughtfully and prayerfully as essentially abortifacients of the taking of a life. And we can have wonderful debates and they unfold contraception and so forth. And our Catholic brothers and sisters have a very well worked out theology and philosophy. with, But we don't have to get into that when we were talking about Ah, the beginning of life, and when does begin, life begin, and then what happens? And so the Greens said, we cannot provide to our employees these four particular forms of services out of 20, 20 that were required uh, under uh, the regulations promulgated by the Department of Health and Human Services in the Obama administration. 
And they said, we can't do that. And the kinds of sanctions being brought against them, threatened, that's why it went to litigation, were absolutely financially ruinous. They would not be able to stay in business in light of the mounting fines. The lawyers here know what I'm talking about. If you continue not to obey Caesar, <laughs> then it can in fact become financially ruinous and you just say, I, I, I've got to toss in the towel or I've got to go out of business. And they chose to fight the good fight. And there are people in this room who were very supportive of organizations that in turn supported this free exercise of religion. Now, it could very well be said, that's not free exercise of religion. They're running a business, and they're regulated. And they've got to obey Caesar. Caesar has spoken. Go to Washington. Try to get HHS. Have an election. But no, they said, we think in this country, the free exercise of religion is capacious enough to protect us in not having to provide this particular set of services that we view as the taking of innocent life. So, Talmadge, one of the takeaways, I'd really love people to just allow this to sink in. The Supreme Court of the United States is our friend. We are winning these cases about religious liberty. You said, well, you mean religious liberty always prevails? No, not always. But essentially, religious liberty is carrying the day, regardless of what's happening in the culture and what's happening in politics. Religious liberty is winning in the Supreme Court of the United States, and not infrequently, it's winning 7-2. to two. If we have time, I'm going to tell you about a case where we won 9 to nothing. Yes, Sonia Sotomayor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg joined in an opinion protecting the religious liberty of parochial schools. Honor to whom honor is due. And so every once in a while they get it right. But uh, much of the time uh, they appear to oppose what I think the people in this room view as important in the way of freedom of religious uh, conscience. Uh, the Hobby Lobby uh, decision was a five to four, a dissent by Justice Ginsburg, joined by Sotomayor, Breyer, and Kagan. And the Masterpiece Cake Shop was seven to two, dissents by Ginsburg and Sotomayor. So what's the thrust of the dissenters' arguments in these important cases in opposing one's freedom of religious conscience? I think they would draw the line at the world of commerce. Uh, so let's take the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. That was the... Jack Phillips, uh, a baker in the Denver area, could not in conscience bake a cake, but it's a specially custom-made cake for a same-sex couple who wanted the cake as a way of celebrating their marriage in Massachusetts. At the time that all this happened, same-sex marriage was not uh, recognized in, in Colorado, but now we've had the Supreme Court decision and so forth. And so Jack Phillips, who is a person of conscience, is a very strong evangelical Christian, uh, has a strongly held view that while he will serve all customers, regardless of uh, sexual orientation and so forth, so it's not as if he says, LGBTQ folks, please don't 
patronized his shop. No, in fact, these two individuals were his customers. But he simply could not create this custom cake to celebrate this marriage, just as he would not celebrate. He had been asked to do this divorce. We're going to have a big party because we're doing. I can't do that. He would not bake Halloween cakes. He views Halloween as uh, as wrong. That it's hallowed evening before All Saints uh, Day in some Christian traditions, and I just cannot do that. That it's demonic. And so he has this well-developed set of views, and he said, I, I will sell you brownies. <laughs> I will sell you anything that's in the shop, but I can't use my artistry to celebrate this. And he won after losing in Colorado. Colorado is a very secular state these days. You said, no, no. Have you ever been to Colorado Springs? Yes, I have. Have you ever been to Vail, <laughs> Aspen, and so forth? And so the state is quite secular uh, in its ethos. And so the Colorado Civil Rights Commission came down, as you know, Talmadge, extremely hard on him. That was affirmed as it went up, and then up it goes to the Supreme Court of the United States. And the Supreme Court of the United States upheld Jack Phillips's claim seven to two. So as to the dissenters, commerce is more important than religious conscience. It is as if, as we say in the law, you assume the risk that if you go into business, you've got, uh, and it's a serious argument, you are a public accommodation. You're not a private club, right? And one of the things that we need to recognize, and I hope everyone, it's one of the purposes of this book that I'm working on, is so that every single person can give an account for the hope that is within you with respect to religious liberty. You don't have to read a single Supreme Court case to know some of these fundamental principles. And the fundamental principles are so much a part of our sense of fairness and who we are that we don't coerce people to engage in, think of the flag salute case. I hope everyone's aware that you can't compel a child to engage in a Pledge of Allegiance if she cannot, real case, Jehovah's Witnesses cannot do that. They view that as a violation of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not fall down before a graven image and so forth. You shall have no other God. The Lord God is one and so forth. Those kinds of ancient commandments in the Hebrew Scripture are viewed by the Jehovah's Witnesses. We can't do that. <laughs> We can't pledge allegiance to the flag. Our allegiance is to higher authority. And the Supreme Court of the United States said, you cannot coerce little children to do that. This is, isn't this wonderful? Thou shalt not coerce. And that's really at the core. That's a core principle. Thou shalt not coerce government, state. Well, the response is, okay, you can't do it to school children. But if you're going to open a business, then we can have a public accommodations law that says you've got to provide the services that you would otherwise provide to uh, anyone else. By the way, one of the great responses, I think, it's not lawyers that say there's some holes in your argument, but it still makes the point. There are a number of very talented people in New York who turned down the opportunity to make the uh, inaugural gowns for the First Lady. Melania Trump. Why? They didn't want to, to use their artistry 
to support someone who they really didn't care for the spouse, etc. Making a what? Political statement. You can draw some distinctions, but it makes the point that in this country, we respect people who said, you know, I just can't do that as a matter of conscience. Think of conscientious objectors. Even in the Revolutionary War, every single colony, future state, all 13 recognized conscientious objectors to taking up arms. Now, as we all know, America during its first two centuries was a much more religious country than it's been the last half century. And that's resulted in there being many religious symbols and even scriptures which were embedded into public places and government buildings long ago, which aggressive secularists now want removed. In fact, uh, in yesterday's Wall Street Journal, uh, which Ken brought with him today, and the, and the headline of this editorial is good, Religious Liberty Wins Another. Uh, there's a new 11th Circuit case on this issue about uh, uh, a cross in, in a public building. So, Ken, as you look to the future, what's your assessment of what biblical images and symbols are going to stay and which are going to have to be removed by reason of? None will have to be removed. Uh, the Supreme Court upheld this last year, so just months uh, ago, by a seven-to-do vote, the Bladensburg Cross. Go on the Internet, if you're unaware of this case, and look at the Bladensburg, Maryland Cross. Enormous cross to commemorate our fallen men. They were all men, of course, at the time, in World War I. And so the cross has been there for almost a hundred years. But the American Humanist Association saw fit to bring an action to require some remedy. They didn't say you've got to tear it down. They said, well, you could transfer the property, which is state property, community property, to a private foundation or whatever. So they weren't saying you must bring in the bulldozer. But if you choose to have the cross there on public property, then the bulldozer needs to come in and take it down. The Supreme Court of the United States said, no, seven to two. Why? Because the purpose of this cross was not to encourage people to accept the Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior. It was rather, and there was a rich history as to how this cross came to be, but it was a memorial to the war dead. Think of Arlington. For those of you who've been to Normandy, if you haven't been to Normandy, Alice and I would say, please go to Normandy and walk in the American, there are other cemeteries, but the American cemetery is so overwhelmingly moving. Well, what are those? Those are crosses and stars of David reflecting the religious affiliation of that fallen soldier. And this has to do with our civilization. Churchill, and may I put in a personal plug? I was born in 1946, just day before yesterday. My middle name is Winston. It tells you about my dear parents who are great admirers of the great man. Churchill viewed, even though he was a person of somewhat ambiguous faith himself, viewed his mission as the preservation 
of Western liberty and what he called Christian civilization. And when you think about that, yes, it's an entire civilization. It's a culture. Why would a wonderful uh, Jewish composer named Irving Berlin write one of the most beloved songs, God bless America, land that I love, right? So Churchill would say more capaciously that this is Christian, call it Judeo-Christian, but Christian civilization that we're defending here against the barbarism, the godless barbarism of the Nazi menace, right? That's what this is. So the American Humanist Association has sought sort of like, well, let's, let's try this effort to dismantle. Let's dismantle this. And they choose their targets very carefully. The good news is these traditions are going to be protected at least during our lifetime and hopefully beyond. But by the way, I'll just go ahead and say Supreme Court nominations matter. Mm -hmm. Supreme Court nominations matter. Ken, I'm going to let you read the punchline. Read uh, Justice Alito in that last paragraph. I want everybody to hear this so you know the state of the law with today's Supreme Court. As Justice Samuel Alito, who's a great, great man, wrote in the American Legion case, that's the Bladensburg Cross case, a government that roams the land, tearing down monuments with religious symbolism and scrubbing away any reference to the divine will strike many as aggressively hostile to religion. That's what has that view so well articulated by Justice Alito is what has convinced Justices Breyer and Kagan to join the five members of the, quote, conservative majority. I don't like those terms, but I'll use them to make it a supermajority because, and Justice Breyer was early on in saying this in the Texas Ten Commandments case, because when you go to the Capitol, you'll see Here's the monument, as a number of state capitals have, to the Ten Commandments. And so a gentleman, this is 15 years ago, brings an action saying, I'm offended by this and I want this removed. This is the state capital. I'm a taxpayer and I shouldn't have to put up with this. And the Supreme Court, seven to two. And Breyer wrote a very interesting saying to actually tear down this monument would evince a hostility to religion as opposed to what has been described as a benign neutrality. Let me just say one thing. The Northwest Ordinance of 1787, so let's go back to the founding, you say, well, wait a second, the Constitution didn't come in until 1789. You're absolutely right. The Northwest Ordinance of 1787, passed by the Continental Congress, was reenacted by the very first Congress sitting in New York in 1789. Section 4 of the law, as reenacted, provided this. Religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. Notice the tie, blessed be the ties that bind, 
religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind. Golly, that's quite an endorsement of religion, isn't it? Some judges and justices, and certainly the American Humanist Association, would say, well, that's unconstitutional. You say, well, Mr. Madison voted in favor of it, and General Washington signed it into law, and there was no real controversy at the time. And isn't that the group that actually wrote the First Amendment? <laughs> you get my drift. Now, in 1993, uh, President Clinton signed into law the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which imposed much stricter standards when secular challenges are made to religious liberty. So what's been the impact of that statute over the last 27 years? Enormous. Uh, and the backdrop, very briefly, is that uh, and I think, ill-designed uh, opinion by the Supreme Court of the United States in an exotic case coming out of Oregon involving the sacerdotal sacramental use of peyote by the Native Americans. So, what is that? But the argument in that case had been that judges, the Supreme Court ultimately, have the authority under our Constitution to create judicially an exemption from these generally applicable laws. That's exactly what um, a Jack Phillips is saying. The decision was wildly controversial when it came down, saying, no, Oregon can prohibit that as well, as long as it's not targeting or singling out religion for unfavorable treatment. But it's basically saying, no contraband, no drugs. No, Oregon has changed a lot, hasn't it? But this is a long time ago. So... It goes up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says, no, if that's what Oregon wants to do, Oregon can do it. Happily, so many groups, including the ACLU at that time, came together and beat their swords into plowshares and agreed upon the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which restored the right of judges to create these exemptions based on conscience. So you've got a law, again, it's generally applicable, no drug, but no drug use here. Well, think of communion wine, right? If you're an Episcopalian, if you're Roman Catholic and so forth, you'd say, I do not do Church of Christ Welch's grape juice. We just don't do that in, in, in our system. You know, the water was turned not into Welch's grape juice. It was turned into wine, right? So where is, well, then we'll create an exemption for that. Society did that. Even, even in prohibition, a lot of people decided to go to church. <laughs> so you get my drift. So by virtue of the sea change in the law, Congress comes together, Republicans and Democrats, and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act said, we don't like that case. We like the older cases where the Supreme Court was creating exceptions to to vindicate claims of judicial uh, of of individual liberty of freedom of conscience and president clinton signed that into law it's a great signing statement if you pull it up which you can on youtube the religious freedom restoration act november 1993 so he's still in his first year in office and you'll see that the vote in the house of representatives to pass this pro religious freedom law was Unanimous, it was on the consent calendar. Anybody can take it off the consent calendar and require vote. It was on the consent, so it passed unanimously. Goes to the United States Senate, 
The United States Senate in 1993 passed that law 97 to 3. It's almost unanimous. Pretty darn close, isn't it? And then President Clinton and the signing statement as well, or the introduction by Vice President Al Gore is mighty. These are great tributes to the importance of religious liberty and the power of courts to create these exemptions. It was the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that the Green family and Hobby Lobby relied upon. That's how important RIFRA you know, if you're in Washington, you have to use acronyms. RIFRA, <laughs> the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. There's more to that story, but walk away. Yeah, there's this thing called RIFRA and Hobby Lobby, and it's a really pro-religious liberty thing. And this is one of your takeaways. It's not just the Supreme Court of the United States protecting religious liberty. Frequently, it's the Congress of the United States that is protecting religious liberty. Now, a lot of these religious liberty issues are very tricky. Uh, for example, under today's constitutional law, are there circumstances where federal funds can be used to pay for the building of a church, such as a chapel on the grounds of a military institution like West Point, Annapolis, or the Air Force Academy? And the answer to that is yes. And the idea of that is what? To vindicate the free exercise of religion of those who are serving in the military. You served with a great distinction. Thank you for serving our country. So every base will have paid chaplains. Imagine. You say, well, wait a second. That doesn't seem like, quote, separation of church and state. My friends, take this away. The word separation of church and state, and of course, we want separation. But those are not the words of the Constitution. It's free exercise of religion. So the uh, courts have always upheld the idea of paid chaplaincies and the building of churches and chapels and so forth. Here's the key. Thou shalt not discriminate. So if the Secretary of Defense said, well, we will have Seventh-day Adventist chaplains, but we won't have any Hindu chaplains. No, no, no. The free exercise of religion and the non-establishment clause taken together mean Government has to look benignly on the rights of the individuals, including in prison, to be able to engage in religious observance. And, of course, that provides, that justifies chaplains uh, and chapels. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, given religion's major impact on American society over the course of our history— Ken, let me ask you a hypothetical question. Assume that you are the president of the United States in 2020. What should be our federal government's foreign policy in promoting religious liberty around the world? It should be to actually, since the job of the president of the United States is to faithfully execute the law. And the president in his or her ceremonial capacity can do a lot to be the nation's school teacher, so to speak. So we look to the president historically as an example. So um, I would say that um, having uh, an inaugural address that recognizes the role of the Almighty uh, and to 
have the ceremony reflect the president's uh, on sense of uh, calling. That's the ceremonial part. But to faithfully execute the law happily, once again, Congress is frequently our friend. So in that same decade that Congress passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, it also passed the International Religious Freedom Act and set an example for the entire world. IRFA. Ooh, that's a bad acronym. And IRFA, the International Religious Freedom Act, specifically ordains that religious freedom will be, in fact, an integral part of United States foreign policy. It created an office, and the office is the ambassador at large for religious liberty. And the current occupant of that office is the very distinguished former senator, former governor of Kansas, Sam Brownback. And Sam Brownback is a go-getter, shows leadership. You were talking about ministering Bobby to leaders, and Sam Brownback does that. So I think he is carrying the mantle of freedom, of free exercise, of freedom of conscience around the world. Then it turned out, and this was true in Republican administrations as well, that the ambassador was being, whether call it the deep state, call it whatever you want to, was being somewhat submerged in the bureaucracy so that in certain administrations, you can imagine which ones, uh, the ambassador at large for women's rights, which is an important office, reported directly to the secretary of state. The ambassador at large for religious liberty reported to an assistant secretary. They said, gee, that sounds so... Who cares? Foreign governments care, don't they, Bobby? If the ambassador has a direct relationship with the Secretary of State and perhaps a relationship with the President of the United States, that person is going to be listened to with much greater respect than someone who's, oh, they're down in the bowels of the bureaucracy. And so Congress responded and passed the Frank Wolf Amendments to the International Religious Freedom Act, signed into law, God bless him, by President Obama as one of his last acts in 2017, passed unanimously by the House of Representatives and almost unanimously again. Sound familiar? In the United States Senate. We need to correct this. And so empower, and I think this president, I'm talking about government, I'm not talking about politics, this president does in fact support sam brownback at every turn well speaking of religious liberty around the world ken what tell us about this tie you're wearing how did you get this tie what is it well this is alice's favorite tie she said you're not going to wear that again are you uh, but this is a tie that was given uh, to me alice has a scarf which is much more attractive this is just a club tie and one of the letters PCT, that's not political correctness, uh, tr troubled. It is the Presbyterian Church of Taiwan. Uh, we were privileged and blessed to participate in a religious liberty conference in Taiwan exactly one year ago. Exactly one year ago. And one of the speakers at this religious freedom was the then president who just won re-election with 57% of the vote. She made a powerful, powerful case for religious liberty and singling out not the Chinese people. 
We love the Chinese people, but the evils of the Communist Party of China and this particular regime, which is extremely hostile to religious liberty of really all faiths, the underground church, you all know those stories. Uh, and so what's the PCT? In the 1980s, the general secretary, as he is still called, the then general secretary of the Presbyterian Church of Taiwan, led the effort to bring democracy to Taiwan. Democracy means freedom, political freedom, press freedom, freedom to vote, but it also means religious freedom. And so the Presbyterian Church of Taiwan, which probably claims 2% of the population, but think of the mustard seed leading the charge for liberty. And why was it? It was a Christian voice. It was a Martin Luther King Jr. type voice saying, this is not right that we're living under martial law, don't enjoy press freedoms and so forth. So I proudly wear my PCT tie. I do say pray for Taiwan. We were talking about Taiwan and a recent experience that Claire Talmadge uh, had with some folks from Taiwan. 30 million people, they just reelected this president who was absolutely steadfast in supporting the protesters of Hong Kong. Out there, shame on you, China, for this extradition law and so forth. Do you realize they could be wiped out? 30 million people think of China and its great power. She just won re-election, 57% of the vote. So pray for Taiwan, a beacon of freedom. Mm-hmm. For my last question and really our ultimate takeaway, I think I know the answer, but I still want you to speak to this wonderful crowd and that is, looking to the future, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the prospects for maintaining religious freedom and freedom of religious conscience in our country? I'm very optimistic with respect to uh, our courts, uh, but especially the Supreme Court. Uh, but I'm not optimistic with respect to the culture. The culture is becoming, as we know, not only secular, but increasingly hostile to religious expression and religious uh, belief, and especially on the issues of gender uh, identity, marriage equality. And, and those are questions that we are going to be, I'm sure, wrestling with. Because one of the things that I would ask you to consider is, if you were Jack Phillips the baker, would you have baked the cake? Would that have been a moment of ministry for you to say, you know, I can't approve, given my biblically grounded beliefs, but I love you. It's a very, and, and I like posing that to law students, to believers. So would, would you have baked the cake? So part of it is also how are we going to respond consistent with conscience uh, in an increasingly secular world? But we can continue, as the psalmist said, to look to the hills which cometh our, uh, our, our help. But elections count. Ken Starr has been a leading figure in American jurisprudence and constitutional law for almost 40 years. As a federal appellate justice, U.S. Solicitor General, independent counsel, 
law professor, law school dean, and appellate advocate who's argued 36 cases to the United States Supreme Court. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Till next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford Bowen McKinley & Norton. Thanks for listening.